Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom. And KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Kristen. Thanks for joining us today. Kristen is a good friend of mine from college and she conveniently also likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, which consists of two rounds of three questions to determine who will earn today's trivia crown. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we follow it up with our famous movie rant where anything goes. Today's movie was suggested to us by, well, all the co-hosts as we continue on to part two of the Back to the Future Adventure Sci-Fi Film Trilogy. This movie was also directed by Robert Zemeckis, who is well known for Romancing the Stone, Contact, and the other two Back to the Future films. Back to the Future 2 came out in 1989 with other films such as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, another mad scientist movie. Now, Tom will be leading the show here today. Tom, why don't you tell us a little bit about the plot of this movie and your initial thoughts? Thank you, Nick. So the, this movie follows right off where the last movie left off. And now Marty, Jennifer, and Doc have to go to 2015 to repair damage to Marty and Jennifer's future children's lives. This results in a catastrophe that occurs in 1955, creating an alternative 1985. So then they have to go back to 1955 in order to fix 1985 and so on and so on and so on. Um, so that, that's the plot of the movie. Boy, I did not like this film at all. <laughs> if you want my honest opinion about this. That's um, why we're here. <laughs> yeah, so the the... Filmmakers had developed a new type of camera. Industrial Light and Magic had actually developed it, which allowed you to put the same actor in conversation with him or herself. So you'll have scenes where uh, three characters are played by um, Michael J. Fox and are in a scene together having a conversation. And they had developed a camera for this. And using this new bit of technology, they went back to the original film and just added in Michael J. Fox. So every scene that you, you might have enjoyed or found charming or entertaining, we now get to revisit behind this like this this glass wall with Michael J. Fox in front of it. So it, it felt like almost like going into a museum and seeing the original Back to the Future in that way. And it felt like kind of sucked the charm out of it. On top of which the plot is is like it feels like it's 14 weeks long in order to get through it. But you know Outside of that, um, yeah, there's things I, about it I found enjoyable. What did you think, KJ? So Back to the Future 2, similar to Back to the Future Part 1, is also as old as time in my memory. I don't remember not having seen these movies. The whole trilogy feels that way. Um, but I do remember watching Back to the Future 2 with my cousins, and we were young enough and we were, we were having discussions trying to figure out how they got the video of the future. So how were they able to go to the future to get the video to bring back to us, to play for us in the movie? Um, in this movie, as Tom said, they do go to the future. But this is, this is a tough movie. Um, it, it doesn't really follow a three-act structure. It's got a lot of little story plots that don't connect that well. Yeah, it's definitely the toughest movie to get through. 
Um, and oftentimes when they, when they do go back to 1955, I kind of just wish I was watching the original Back to the Future and not sitting through this one. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I'm all over the map with this one. There's parts of this, this movie that I really enjoy, and there's other things that I have big question marks. But what I will say is, of the trilogy, I've seen this movie the least. So we all know my story last week of going to Aunt Genie's and watching Back to the Future a million times. And for some reason, through the college years, Back to the Future 3 was like always on cable. But Back to the Future 2 was not. So I, I haven't seen it anywhere near as much as the other movies. I do. I always did, and I still do find interesting their depiction of the future, which was 2015, which is now our past. And I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more, what they got right, what they got wrong. But I, I always did find that part funny, even with the way people dressed or what they thought the world would look like um, with the flying cars and, and whatnot. I, I do enjoy, as long as you shut your brain off from trying to figure out how they handle time travel, um, if you just jump in and, and, and don't even think about any of that stuff, it is enjoyable. And, and I re, even when I was doing a rewatch with my wife, I, I found myself continuing to tell her like, oh, don't worry. It's, it's not as good as the first, but it's, it's okay. And she's like, no, I'm actually enjoying this. I'm like, oh, yeah, it is still enjoyable. You know, just because it's not as good as the first doesn't mean it's bad. I had a little difference of opinion maybe than uh, KJ and Tom uh, when he goes back to uh, 1955 I know what they were doing and I thought it was kind of cool to see it from a different perspective do they all line up maybe not but I, I actually was okay with that some of the things that I wasn't as much okay in the first movie I mentioned that the special effects really held up I feel like some of this was experimental technology and maybe did not hold up as well as uh, the first movie. Again, there were more flying cars, more split screens with different people talking to different versions of themselves. I'll buy into it, but I, I think it was a little smoother in the first. But I'm going to turn it over to Kristen, who I know enjoys this movie, so hopefully I'm bridging the gap here. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Kristen? Okay, so I could definitely start off in saying that I love any movie with time travel. So I'm like that nerd that if there's time travel in the movie, I love it. So not only do I love two, I love one and three of the Back to the Future trilogy as well. And I mean, my husband has heard me say this so many times. I love how they interconnect all three of them so well. And there's so many pieces that, yes, might be corny, but like they really thought about it. You can tell that they taped two and three together because there's so many little pieces and I'm like that nerd out there that like loves to be like, oh my God, they knew what was gonna happen. Like, of course they knew it, they had writers. Um, so I still really like two. I love that like one, and this is where I think I really like enjoy time travel movies is like one thing that you do in your life can change the rest of your life. And they show it in the movie, how like one little simple thing that, you know, going to the future and changing one thing can change the entire outlook of your life. So I still really enjoy it. I did rewatch it recently and the 1950s part did kind of get a little boring i could see myself picking up my phone a little bit because it was like a little like all right come on get the sports all back and like let's wrap it up um but the rest of it i really do like i do wish that they just shortened it a little bit i don't know if you need that all the scenes in 1950 but it's still one of my favorite movies i have to say it was always all three movies were always on the cable channels growing up so i feel like it was one of those movies that you could like put on watch in the background it's always on so I love it. I love how they end it. It's like, I love the whole trilogy. 
There we go. Now, of course, one of the critical questions we ask all our guests is, if you were going to enjoy a snack while watching Back to the Future Part 2 specifically, what would you recommend and why? I wish I could say some dehydrated pizza, but they haven't invented that yet. So I'm going to go with some popcorn with some M&Ms. You got a little bit of sweet and a little bit of salty, which is the perfect, perfect mix. And my husband is simply in charge of snacks and he pours a ton of butter that he melts to put on top of the popcorn and it's delicious. Now, do you ever mix the M&Ms in with the popcorn? Because I believe we had a guest who did. I don't. Some, some people do. No, I like to keep mine separate. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. I think that's always a winner. I, I'm a big popcorn junkie, so you don't really have to take much convincing on that end. As we continue to explore the entire Back to the Future trilogy, we thought we'd make it a little more interesting by keeping a running tally of points in which each co-host will face off against the collective power of our guests. To make things obnoxiously fair, each host will have a buddy guest with whom they will share points. You still have to trust me. The math works. My buddy this week is the guest, Kristen. Tom's buddy will be next week's guest, and KJ's buddy was none other than last week's guest, who earned him an extra four points. Thank you, Justin. It's time for Movie Quiz. In round one, each question is going to be worth one point. Here are the categories. Getting it right, getting it wrong, and inheritance. Kristen, as our guest, which category would you like to start with? We'll start with getting it right. It's time for question one. In this film, Marty, Doc, and Jennifer visit the year 2015. What aspect of the future did this film get right? I'm locked in. All right, I have, I'm locked in now. Locked in. All right, so let's start with our guest, Kristen. What is your answer? Video phones. You know, when they're in Marty's house, they see they have the video talking, and, you know, FaceTime today, is, and even in 2015, was they got that one right. Very good. I'll swing around to Nick. What did you have, Nick? I think the biggest one that always stood out to me was the flat panel TVs. That was not something that exists, and I think that really did permeate uh, society quicker. I'm not saying that Kristen is wrong with that. They did come recently, especially in COVID-19 world uh, with a lot of the web conferencing, but I always thought they got uh, the flat panel TVs right. They also had some picture-in-picture -picture action going on, which didn't exist, but I'd say the device itself. All right, and KJ, what do you have? So a lot of the technology they got right, a lot of the technology they got wrong, but the one thing they absolutely nailed was the 80s nostalgia. In 2015 till today, I mean, that, that's a lot of our TV, a lot of our movies. I, I mean, we're talking about Back to the Future right now. I would say the 80s nostalgia is what they absolutely nailed. All right, three good answers. I'm gonna go with KJ's. Uh, I, I like that answer the most. I knew yeah. it, I knew it. Um, and I think it also opens up a, a larger conversation, especially in terms of how this film uses nostalgia. So that that was something very interesting to me. I think Kristen, that was also a great answer. Um, I didn't think of that at all, that the video phone thing actually, it, it, it exists and is there. I was so kind of taken back by the size of technology or the size of screens, but you know, it's absolutely right. Video conferencing and also the flat screens are, yeah, clearly something wasn't there in 1985. It wasn't until the nineties, right? And then they cost like 10 grand or something like that. Um, 
but let's talk about, I really like this idea of nostalgia. So let's talk about nostalgia and uh, how it functions in this movie. So in the future, um, they're setting up a very similar scene to the first movie. In the first movie, Marty ends up in um, the town square in 1955, and they're doing not quite shot for shot, but they're, they're going through that progress again in 2015. And every time I watch the movie, I have this moment where I'm like, how are they going to do this? How are they going to populate the entire square and the diner? And the answer is so obvious once you see it make it 80s nostalgia so that they can just put in all the things that they already have ready to go. It'll look kind of futuristic. It, it was a great solution to making the future feel lived in and, and kind of real because nostalgia, nostalgia is all around us all the time. I can also say when they went back to the antique store, like they have their dust buster, like God, I mean, I think every house had a dust buster in the 80s. I think some people still have dustbusters to this day, but like that is an antique these days. How many people have dustbusters? My mother-in-law does, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the dustbuster was cool. I also really liked how they threw in another technology, the dust-free paper. <laughs> they used that to like make sure audience look this almanac this almanac's going to be important <laughs> later we're not going to use it in this act and marty and doc aren't going to realize in the second act but it's going to be important <laughs> later so here take a look and he he almost throws it out in that robot garbage but then puts it in a normal garbage later <laughs> yeah. yeah it's and this is something in the first film also there is is kind of an understanding of the nostalgia machine because uh, the first one was like functioning on nostalgia. And what's interesting about this movie is it seems to be functioning on a nostalgia, not for the 50s, but for the first film. <laughs> so if you have a kind of love or, or, you know, for the first film, it's we're going to give that to you again. We're going to recycle that. And part of the pleasure of the movie is you reminiscing on the pleasure you got four years ago when this first movie came out. Um, and it's also, they're kind of embodiment of different time periods. I was reading about this in a, in a book about Back to the Future, this idea of 55, 85, 15, the, the midpoint in the decade. So it's not, you know, it's not just 1985 or 1955, it's the 80s writ large and the embodiment of the 80s. It's not 55, it's the 50s writ large. Um, and so the whole thing, these two movies, and I'm sure the third one too, when we get to it, are sort of functioning as, um, functioning via nostalgia that's what it's providing you it's you know exactly what you want of the past this is a little bit outside the movie but if we're talking about nostalgia i'm going to even talk about the movie set within the movie um so a long time ago i was watching twilight zone the original ones black and white and i was watching the first twilight zone ever made which was where is everybody and there's a gentleman walking around a town that's completely vacant of any people it's the same exact set from back to the future like it's crazy so it's it's a it's a a a lot and universal and they have used this same town sequence in a ton of different movies uh some of them i think even like uh gremlins to kill a mockingbird the ghost whisperer and a ton of other movies so it's just funny to me that whenever i see back to the future i now think of that original twilight zone because it's the same sequence i just thought that was uh, kind of related to how it can make you think of other things that you've seen before but it just it, it, I'd, i would recommend just watching that episode 
to to just see how it looks then and think about how it was almost timeless to how it looks in uh, Back to the Futures. Yeah, and I think we're going to get into this a little more too with later questions, since I wrote the questions, I I know this, but... um, This idea, <laughs> this idea of of like how the how film itself is sort of making the past, right? So you know the the nostalgia that we feel is a product not of something, but of this this replication of it. The you know the the film of it, um, and so that's interesting. But the, the Twilight Zone, I had just watched that episode too, Nick, not too long ago, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Uh, I didn't make that connection that they're the same, the, the, the yeah, same set. Exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it, I mean, they made some tweaks, mm. but they made the theater name is different, but it's the same. Oh yeah. Twice. Yeah. It's the same, you know, they, they yeah. decorated in yeah. different ways, I'm sure. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah th- that's interesting. Cause you know, our vision of the fifties and I think even like people who grow up in the fifties, like my parents, um, I think their vision of the fifties is more made from film than their own recollections. All right, Nick, I will give this to you. Our two remaining categories are getting it wrong and inheritance. Well, since we already focused on something they got right, let's go to the opposite side and see what they got wrong. Getting it wrong. It's time for question two. What aspect of Back to the Future Part Two's depiction of 2015 differs the most from our own 2015. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in. I think we'll start with Nick this time. So Nick, for one point. Okay, Uh, I think it's quite apparent. The transportation in Back to the Future 2 if I recall going back five years or so, while there may have been one-off projects about flying cars, our whole uh, transportation industry and society was not changed to a flying system of highways. So I would say the flying cars and all of the transit that ensues from there. I was going to say the flying cars, but Nick stole my answer. So I'm going to go with the clothing, um, with the you know shoes that tie themselves, which I wish were publicly available. I know they've created some one-off self-tying shoes, but with two young kids, self-tying shoes would be amazing. Also jackets that size themselves, awesome. Self-drying jackets. I wish wish we had the clothes that Back to the Future 2 had. So I wrote down people's enthusiasm. And I feel like in 2015, people were way less enthusiastic than in the movie. If it was a real depiction, he would have been walking around the square and everybody just would have been on their phones. We all just would have been looking down. He would have walked into the diner. Everybody would have been looking down. So the, the I, it's not so much what did they guess that they got wrong, but what did they miss? And I, and I think a big one is how we all just kind of, we, we interact differently. We interact on our phones more than in real life, and, and which is cool. That's awesome. So I think that was kind of missing people it was still a town square it still felt like a place where people came to hang out and i guess that still exists but um i feel like that's something that they could they couldn't have predicted this but if they were to remake it again today to depict 2015 as we know it it would have been a much more boring place as opposed to having things happening all great answers i'm really gonna have to give it to kj again 
who is dominating this <laughs> round. Uh, AJ knows the fluff to throw at you, Tom. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I think my trend tends to be questions that make me happy and make me want to talk about them. Not so much, is it right? <laughs> Right, right, right. Who cares about right? But yeah, I, I, I think that that's all true. Actually, the thing that surprised me most about the technology was the self-fitting clothes and the self-drying clothes, the, the kind of accommodating clothes. I thought, like, why, why doesn't that happen? Since we do have that technology, I'm sure we have that technology, you know. But there just must be something about um, getting fitted or, or getting something that's that's more. Um, there must be something about the way we buy clothes that we enjoy enough for it not to change, which, which is must be my guess. I think it's probably cost. I think it's probably yeah. cost. Yeah. Technology is there. So even in this mm. movie, they talk about uh, a little bit about enhancements as well. Like some kind mm -hmm. of chip he, uh, uh, Griff had in his head wasn't working right. Even when he goes to punch him, there's clearly some kind of cybernetics on his hand to grab uh, Marty's fist. So there are enhancements, but I think it comes down to uh, economies of scale haven't been made yet to get to that point. Yeah. But hey, I like a nice fitted suit too. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's also, we, we have enhancements. We have, you know, better pacemakers, um, uh, eye surgery, like LASIK, you know, things like that. Um, but I, I do think that the the idea of what a town square is, is the thing they've gotten most dramatically wrong. And that's a that's a really good answer because it's not as if we don't have town squares anymore quote unquote it's just they're plural and they're sort of emergent and you can join whichever one you want wherever in the world you are so long as you, you know you have an internet connection yeah so that that i think is is very interesting uh and and so kj you described this as a change in enthusiasm initially and i've kind of i was interested in what you meant by that so when I when I imagine walking into, um, let's say you're in Philadelphia and you're walking into a, you know, a, one of the public places. Um, when I imagine the people there, if some kid grabbed whatever the equivalent of a skateboard was now and started being chased around, some people might look up, some people might start recording it with their phone, but for the most part, people would still be looking down at their phone because that's not as interesting as what's on YouTube right now or wh whatever they're doing as opposed to what's happening. Whereas before we had phones, we had television. So at home we could consume something more interesting than maybe what's going on at the square. But then before that in the, well, I guess in the fifties they had TV, but the town square was that social outlet. We've moved that social outlet to our phone. So it's just not as, um, even if you're there, you're not as into it because it's not your only option for this social outlet. And that's where I think the enthusiasm of the people in the square um, wouldn't have been as high. They, they would have either just shrugged their shoulders like, eh, oh, well, or not, not noticed at all. I would also add that their town square was more interactive than even anything that we have today. Like Jaws is coming out and like eating Marty. You have with the mayor's son now what i can't remember selling the car enhancements or whatever to you know enhance your car to a hover car um they had the commercials and everything interactive on their town square and like that's not our town squares even today it's not what you have yeah it felt more like a disney world or a theme park walking through that exactly do you think that there's a little bit of a geographical bias here though too is it because we all live in roughly out of like major metro uh, metropolitan areas 
do you think this is pervasive throughout the whole U.S. and in other areas uh, throughout the world? So I do think it is more world worldwide and not local, just because we live outside of, of major cities, or a lot of us do. And I, I do think that you described it, KG is kind of, and KG and Nick as, as sort of invasive, as, as something that that sounds kind of negative. And it seems more like the, um, the town square has moved from it being a physical thing to this, uh, to a simulation of a town square in order to to make it how you want it or how you know a group of individuals want it um which is again kind of cinematic right because the town square we are literally seeing in all of the back to the futures is something made the way the filmmakers want it or made the way they think their audience would like it and so the that kind of that the time the town square invented for the back to the future movies in some ways kind of presages the, the, the town square made on the internet. They're both simulations of something that used to exist. So my town, as an example, is unique where I live because the town was created, um, I think, before the 1900. It actually still does have some semblance of a town square, but even in the area I live in, they're very rare. Usually you maybe have a strip mall or something like that. So I have a little bias that that does exist. And there's maybe one or two other towns in our county that still have that general setup, or at least they have one strip. But that whole, you know, organization around a town square is is not as prominent as it used to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, but if you wanted news, or if you wanted to be social, would that town square be the first place you'd go? Absolutely not. <laughs> You're right on technology. We, we use technology to find out what's actually going on in the town. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> oh, I just have to say, though, if the filmmakers actually did make it like the actual 2015 and everyone was walking around the, time, the, the square on their phones, A, it would be really depressing to watch. And B, you would miss all of those like little like hidden gems of, you know, the mayor's son or Max Spielberg um, producing Jaws 19. Like, it added an element of like that excitement that I think if they actually just had everyone walking around of actual 2015, it would be watching Wally where everyone's overweight in a chair. Like nobody wants that. That's Hollywood for you. But it... <laughs> That's Hollywood for you. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to what you were saying, KJ, about enthusiasm. We want a world we can be enthusiastic about that we can look at um, and, and, you know, be excited. Uh, I, yeah, the, the the 3D jaws, you know, j jumping out at you, is is one of those one of those elements, right? That the you know that there's spectacle, but also continuation. It's Max Spielberg. It's you know th that tradition is continuing on. Yet it's bigger and brighter and better than ever. And it's entertaining that they're on 19 jaws, 19. Like that's not. I mean that's not realistic that that was ever going to happen. But I feel like that's where the comedic that like watching back now, you, you laugh of like, Oh, Jaws 19, it's really going to get you or it's going to get you in the town square. Like I find that part as like the humorous part. Yeah. And they also says like uh, the star, the shark still looks fake. I think that was just a little jab at Spielberg. I think that's Zemeckis just kind of making fun of his boss. One of the, uh, along those lines, one of the other movies we watched uh, for the podcast was Spaceballs, and uh, they make reference to Rocky 5,000. <laughs> All right, KJ, are you ready for our last category, Inheritance? Yes. It's time for question three. What about the 1985 world 
is most prevalent in the film's 2015 world? Or another way of phrasing this is, what about the past in this world most firmly shapes the future? Oh, I'm locked in. I'm good. Locked in. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm locked in too. I have that, you know, you have Biff waxing the car in 1985 and then still in 2015, Griff is still complaining he didn't wax that car correctly. So my answer is Biff is our, our common theme kind of between the two. So mine is somewhat car related as well, uh, but not the character. One of the things you'll notice every once in a while, they have a futuristic car, but there's still a preface on old being turned into uh, new or being useful in the future. So you have a lot of cars. There was actually a, um, I don't think it was supposed to be a Ford Mustang from the eighties, but it was, uh, that was retrofitted. So they still uh, just kind of reuse the idea of what automobiles were and then use them again in the future. For example, nobody is really thrown off by seeing a flying DeLorean. They just expect things from the eighties were retrofitted and now available 30 years later in the future. Uh, the most, or the, actually not the most iconic part of the beginning of the movie um, is Marty's truck. Marty's truck has a, has a look to it that if you think about it, it kind of looks futuristic. Um, there's a, it's, it's more than just a truck. I think there's like lights up top or a bar that goes over top. Um, so my answer is also car related. I think that that truck that he has influenced a lot of the design for things in the 2015 um, and it might be because it's easier to add things like things were added to that truck than it is to take things away and try to catch them on film, especially in 1989 when this movie was made. Good answers for everyone. I'm going to say, since everyone basically said the same thing, more or less, that we get a point for everyone. How does that sound? All right. All I, I right. Like, I like Kristen's answer too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. I'm not, I'm not car related, mm -hmm. but it's all right. It's uh, similar, you know? With, with Kristen, your answer, you get the, this idea of like the, the families are still there, like the same people that that's what's shaping the future is that th these people in this community are still hanging out and are still around. Oh, actually, I changed my mind. I give it to Kristen. Yay. Woohoo! <laughs> I support now that. that. I, thought it through. I, I support mm -hmm. that. Yeah. That's yeah. A good, question. A good answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that is another thing that's interesting about this is that um, despite the fact that it is the future and it's the, you know this different type of world, there is a lot of this kind of small town mentality going on there. And we still have like generations and generations of people who are still in this California town. Um, I was wondering what people, people thought of that, thought of that kind of way of thinking of the world. I was going to say, I grew up, I'm living in the town I grew up in. Like, yes, I obviously don't live in the same house, but I live in the same town. My kids will go to the same high school that I went to. So I think there is some, you know, value in staying local. And I, I, I like the, I like the neighborhood feel. And like, I am in a small town in New Jersey, but we have a small town feel. There's a lot of people who I grew up with who still live here. So it's kind of like a same kind of concept that sometimes you don't move away and you still live in the same town.
you know, while, while you do have a, a fair amount of people who are more mobile than may have been in the past, you still do have a lot of what we refer to as townies. <laughs> and, and, and to be fair, I can't even judge here because I may not live in the town, but I live about 15 minutes from the town I grew up in. So I, I think I'm still under that bubble. I also wonder with all the teleworking, um, you know, working from home that's going on as jobs become less um, location specific, if you will get more people staying in the town they grew up in, or if you'll get more people moving out. I don't know. I think we'll get more people moving out personally because I mean, in New Jersey where, you know, I live, we're close to New York and that's where the jobs are. If I don't have to live near New York, you could move anywhere and like not pay New Jersey taxes. Uh, yes. I think anyone in this state, not to make this getting <laughs> political or anything to do with that. Yes. Yeah. There are certain areas that are much more affordable to live in and uh, you know, lifestyle requirements <laughs> are maybe improved <laughs> i did also like how everybody kind of picked up with the cars on the the fact that the designs are held over from 1985 into 2015 that what you know what we see in terms of design is just sort of larger or brighter versions of, of 1985 um and it's kind of interesting because the change in design seems to be kind of smaller and sleek that seems to be have be what had happened as opposed to their version of 2015 which is large and loud but it kind of touches on the phones again right that the most important screen is now the smallest screen not the not the big screen in marty's den no i was gonna say we went into this a little bit in the prior episode with uh innovation being more mechanical than like nanotech, which is kind of how our world, things got smaller, as you said. Even there, it was very mechanized. So they had a gas station where the service was all done by computers or machines versus the staff who, and when they went back in time to 55, you had the whole crew doing the, you know, the full service. So everything was still more on that mechanized track, not only in 85, but when we got to the future. Things may have been more advanced, but it's still the hoverboard, everything had a certain mechanical element to it um, that still portrayed throughout all, you know, well, these two movies. And actually, to be quite honest, when we get to the third movies, he does use innovation to the times there as well, which is more mechanical. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it's kind of a, it, it's kind of joining the 1880s and joining the 1880s to the, the 2015s. It's seeing... Um, mechanization as being the driver of innovation, which we know is not not the case. Well, Tom, uh, these were some great questions and some uh, interesting conversation for the first round. Can't wait to hear what you have for us in store. Round two, we just have to take a quick commercial break to pay those bills. We'll be right back. Previously on Marlowe's Spliced Crazed Lab Mystery. What's the case? My husband went missing two days ago. Why, he works for Splice Craze Lab. If you ever want to see your husband alive again, bring his super secret files to the main offices here at Jeans Jeans by midnight, or else, and come alone. The upright cat? That sounds fascinating. I can't wait. Marlowe says with uncharacteristic joy. 
May we get back to my case? She asks. Yes, yes, of course. This is what we're going to do, toots. First I'm going to kiss you. Then light a cigarette. Drink a glass of scotch while staring into the distance. Then take your place tonight at midnight for the meeting at Jean's Jean's. I'll pack my trusty thirty-eight special and rescue your husband, Sir Julius Orson Greenstreet, Esquire. Marlowe wraps his trench coat around him, jams his thirty-eight special into his holster, and gives Bacall Marlene Eliza a big kiss on those damn hot lips. But she is far too much of a femme fatale to swoon. So he lets her go and storms out into the night, searching for Jean's jeans. San Francisco. The rain drips down, washing the filth of the city. On street corners and in gutters, computer coders drink artisanal cocktails and listen to cow punk while vaping watermelon apple-flavored tobacco. In this city, you can find any degeneracy you're willing to search for. Marlowe spits and moves forward into the rain. He turns the corner and approaches a large glass building. Jeans, jeans. The sign glows yellow in the black, soulless night. Marlowe tries the door and finds that it opens. A hand stops him. You don't want to go in there. And we're back for round two. I'll turn it back over to you, Tom. Our next categories, and I will give this to, to Nick to select, are real, step, and adopted, semiotics, and lastly, hyperreality. Each one of these questions will be worth two points. So Nick, which category would you like? I'm quite fond of semiotics, so let's do that one. It's time for... Question four. Select a timeline or period. What sign or symbol best represents your selected time period from this film? Locked in. Come on. All right, locked in. I'm locked in too. So this movie got a lot of things about the future wrong, as we discussed. But one of the most iconic things in Back to the Future is the DeLorean. But the second most iconic thing in Back to the Future is the hoverboard, that bright pink with the neon green, the way it kind of is always shaking a little bit. It never quite seems stable, but Marty McFly can get it to go where he needs it, um, unless he's on water, because he doesn't have any power. <laughs> but uh, that hoverboard is by far the most iconic symbol of the 2015 portion of Back to the Future. All right, so I looked at this a little bit differently. Um, I'm going to go with the Biff's um, mat set of matches that he kind of takes with him from the alternate timeline. Um, and then he kind of takes a look at it. And I feel like this is one thing that they kind of use, that symbol in every movie that they use to see, like, have they changed the future um, or the past or <laughs> whichever way you're looking at this. So I'm going to go with that um, set of match. The matchbook that says Biff's on it. I'm going to give a callback to a prior episode, uh, Mad Max Fury Road. And I'm going to talk about the 1950s, okay? Uh, 1955. And what really symbolized that error in this movie was being all shiny and chrome. 
When you go back to the 50s, all the cars have nice shiny bumpers, everything's clean. It shows you that 1955 is good and pure and everything that happens there will lead to a happy future. So I will meet you on the road to Valhalla with shiny and chrome. I think I'm gonna go with Kristen's answer here. Um, it, it was the most different from the other two. Yes, very good. And that's two points for Kristen. Um, so we didn't recall the points before, but at the end of round one, KG had uh, two and um, Kristen had one. And so now it's uh, three to two. So very good. Um, and, and Nick is also here. And Nick is here with no points, <laughs> which is why I didn't mention you. I think that idea of the time period being embodied by a physical object and you know that that time is valid or invalid based upon does that object transform so it's not just the matchbook but a lot of times it's the newspaper and so i i picked your answer because it's not just that idea of of the object capture the object is kind of a sign of success or failure it doesn't just represent 1985 C, I think that is, the, the third version of 1985 we're given in the series. Um, but that's also the plot mechanism by which we can tell whether a time ceases to be real or, or what have you. But uh, yeah, I, I do like how um, there's these kind of signs or symbols that kind of stand out and are striking. And I think like the cars, of course, the car is the most important one. Um, the DeLorean is not only the sign of, of time, but it's also back to the future. So much so that um, the DeLorean is more important in Back to the Future than as a car that existed at some point in history. Yeah, quite a flop, actually. Yeah, yeah it was like it was, it was not a very good car, right? No, and even later, like if you did have one, they had serious rust problems <laughs> in addition to all the other mechanical problems. Uh, but what I, I'm uh, talking about things that actually worked out well, uh, that were iconic, literally in the movie, even if it doesn't make sense in how time travel, even if it was possible, the use of the newspapers and the photographs and the matchbox, I don't care if it makes sense or not, it's still really cool. Like just to see them change and flicker, like the, literally the headlines move and new pictures arise. I, I don't really care if it makes sense. It, it's, it's really well done. I know it's an easy way to show the viewers that like they've succeeded. Cause if not, they would have had to travel back and the storyline wouldn't have worked if they didn't have those little symbols of like, oh yes, we saved the day, phew. Moving on to our next question. And this is for... Kristen, uh, the categories are real, step, and adopted, and hyper-reality. I'm going to go with real, step, and adopted. It's time for question five. How does the film depict fatherhood and father figures? I'm locked in. I'm locked in. Locked in. So fatherhood, I think, is depicted interestingly in Back to the Future 2. I'm really going to take a look at where Marty McFly was a father. And I'm going to say he was kind of a crappy father. Like he, you kind of, the, when you see him in the future, he's not very good. He's doing illegal things. He's, they're obviously not as well off as they were at the end of 1985. They're living in a not so good neighborhood. And I guess the thing that always gets me when watching all the movies is when he's called chicken, he just has to do it, even though he knows it's a bad idea. 
So I'm going to say when looking at Marty McFly in the image of fatherhood, it's, it's pretty crappy. So along those lines, I don't think the main father figure portrayals in this movie are anywhere near positive. Biff is a perfect example of what you would not want a father figure to be. Uh, he is just, I can't even say how horrible he is in the timeline in which there's what Biff's world, the casino, they got a nuclear power plant, a bunch of bikers outside. Uh, he is the antithesis of what you would want in a father figure. And even Marty himself in the future is not a particularly strong person, let alone father figure. So I don't think uh, there's a, a bright light shined on the role of fatherhood here as a whole. Yeah, very similar answer uh, to both Kristen and Nick. Um, fatherhood is not shown well in Back to the Future 2. Okay, thank you. Since everyone answered the same, I'm going to give everyone two points. <laughs> I'm finally on the board. You are, yeah. Um, I will say, I think, so everybody gets two points and I'm gonna give an extra point to Nick because I think you're the most articulate with, with your answer. But I think that everybody deserves points because you all said the same thing. So what I found this interesting in this movie was a lot of the movies focused on kind of men and masculinity and the way they, they kind of do things. We do have Jennifer as, as a main character, but she sort of faints and, and that's the end of her. And yet the, a lot of the, the characters, we see them in you know, various ages, either as fathers or as sons. Um, and it is interesting, I think everybody you know, has obviously said this, that their role as self-interested hero as trying to drive their own timeline is what the, the men in this movie are kind of better at. The role as father or raising a next generation seems to be a lot more difficult. It's time for question six. This film depicts a variety of different versions of 1985, as well as a few different alternatives of other time periods. Considering the fragility of the time, answer the question, what is the real? Locked in. I'll say locked in, but I don't want to go first. I will also be locked in, but I would prefer not to go first. So KJ, you're going first. What answer do you have? So the, the Back to the Future series um, probably doesn't have a very strict set of time travel rules. Uh, it's, it's one of its strengths that it's just, it's really fun to go through the trilogy. But if they did have a set of time travel rules and we were going to settle on what is real in 1985 i think it would have to be whatever marty mcfly's perspective is right now i think the only set of rules that may work for this trilogy is marty mcfly is the center of the universe everything else kind of revolves around him so the real 1985 is the 1985 that Marty McFly is currently observing. Okay, I believe the question just said, what is the real, not real for a specific time period. So when I look at the trilogy as a whole, I think everything is the real. And the reason I state this is, these sequences had to occur in order for the eventual future to be what it's supposed to be. So these sequences of events were going to happen to drive us to the end result of what the future was. 
so I'm going to jump ahead, and I know we're talking about two, but I'm going to say the, the real of 1985 is how the movie ends in that final scene where Marty has been to 2015, he's been to 19 or 1885, he's been to 1955, and he's actually done all of his learning. He learns what he's supposed to do, and then that final scene where he's driving and he doesn't take the, the chicken challenge on the road, and... I definitely like to look at like the best of people. So that's like his best 1985 and the real 1985. Very good answers all. Um, I'm going to have to go with KJ for this one. I I really like, yeah, everybody's smart. I really like. Um, I would go with anyone but KJ on this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened with, why I like that answer was this idea of, um, the idea of everything kind of centering or surrounding Marty McFly, that he's the kind of warm, cool center of the world uh, and, and everything's directed or made in respect to him. I think that, I think that is not only kind of metaphorically true, as in Marty McFly is the main character, so we're following him. I think it's actually functionally and literally true. I think he is making the world uh, maybe not intentionally making the world the way he wants it, but the time machine is shaping reality to an end at which he's attempting. He might fail in certain respects or the, the end might be accidental, but all of time is sort of in service to McFly and this, this machine, or he's using this machine to put it in service to him. And so the real seems to be separated from any kind of grounding or any kind of mooring, right? That <laughs> It's just sort of, you can make it whatever you want. Um, it's, it's all sort of simulation at this point. Well, after thinking about this further based on what was deemed the correct answer, I think I can blow our minds a little bit more in that none of this was real because the dog Einstein was the first one to go through the time machine. So all of the realities are based off from his perspective. And we don't even know if this was the original timeline. So I would say the first time traveler, right before he went into the time machine to go forward a minute, that was the real. The, the, the reason I, I really think it's got to be Marty McFly is in Back to the Future 2, Biff takes the DeLorean back to 55 and then comes back to Marty's 2015. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm just trying to have fun. But yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> you know, even beyond that, it's, it's, you know, the dog kind of doesn't have perspective, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's not so much, is there this kind of thing that's real that we can ground? Because you could just say this about, you know, about anything. I mean, if the 1955B, the 1955 that McFly Marty returns to in the first film isn't real anymore because Marty in the second film has gone back there and made changes. There isn't stopping a, a Marty from another film or another person going back there and creating DEF, etc. And so what the, what the second film opens up when we're able to see Marty with Marty in certain shots in 1955 is that the sense of a singular reality is kind of lost, right? It's all, it's all simulation of something we think of as real, which I think ends up becoming a good metaphor for the film itself and, and the way film 
kind of operates. Well, it looks like KJ racked up the most points this week. I'm happy to see that Kristen did amazingly well as my buddy, and at least I got something on the board before the show ended. KJ is capped out at 13. The rest of us can still accumulate points. The guests are next with nine points. Nick, which is me, I have eight points, and Tom is close by with seven points. Tom, these were great questions. I'm sure we have a few more thoughts about this movie, which we will explore in the movie rant right after this quick break. Perfectly Placed is a service where we perfectly place instructions, items, and other things you need to get you through your day. But enough for me, let's hear from one of our customers. Hi there, Harry here, and I'm being paid to promote Perfectly Placed, which I use on a daily basis. Some people seem able to do and know everything. I'm not one of those people. But thanks to Perfectly Placed, now I am. Perfectly Placed places what I need in a perfect location when I need it. Just the other day, I went to start the lawnmower. Do I prime it first? Do I pull the cord? What's the best way to operate this machine? I looked down... And there was step-by-step instructions, not only on how to get my mower started, but the best pattern for my lawn. My lawn never looked better. The grass leans perfectly with the sun. Thanks, Perfectly Placed. Perfectly Placed. We get around to reminding you what you'll get around to. And we're back. I know we talked about a lot already, but any other thoughts to come to mind with Back to the Future Part 2? It's time for Movie Rant. I did want to mention my favorite part of the movie um, by far is uh, in 1955, George knocks out Biff and Biff's kind of sitting on the ground and there's a group of people kind of trying to help Biff or they're like uselessly trying to get somebody's attention. And there's a guy there um, who has a very distinct look. Marty comes up to grab the almanac, grabs the almanac and runs. And the guy says, I think he took that man's wallet. The way he says that is hilarious and then later on biff's still sitting on the ground and somebody else comes by that group and the guy says it again i think that man took that guy's wallet like it's (laughs) it's the best part of the movie if if you're not going to watch any part of back to the future 2 just find that clip i always thought that was such an odd push joke too like one time like why did they really i think he actually says the second time to biff i think he took your wallet that's right that's right yep it's like direct you know one of the other things uh, with this movie that always jumped out at me, and it, it, similar to this brought you enjoyment, this, this thought just brought me great disdain every time I saw it. This whole sequence of events with Biff, yes, it comes from the sports almanac, but just lock the damn doors in the DeLorean. Why didn't you lock? The, you got a time machine. It's very dangerous. Why did you leave it open so Biff could go in it? Like, that's a pivotal moment of the whole storyline here. It could have easily been avoided if he locked the damn Midori in. Well, a lot of this movie, the plot points happen because the plot points need to happen, and they even joke about it. So they bring Jennifer to the future, and Marty looks at Doc at one point and says, why are we bringing Jennifer? And Doc's like, I don't know. But the reason they had to bring Jennifer was so they had a reason to leave the DeLorean unlocked on the street so Biff would take the almanac and go. Otherwise, there's no reason for Jennifer to have gone to the future. So this movie, I think, is pretty riddled um, with things like this. Even the um, nobody calls me chicken, like that whole plot line seems to come out of nowhere. Um, and it's just it, we need that because Marty needs to have reasons to do other things throughout the trilogy. 
Yeah, it's. Uh, I think Pauline Kael described this movie in a review as um, running on a treadmill in a void. It, the movie just keeps going. It, it keeps recycling old things. You're not exactly sure where you know uh, why some of this stuff is happening, but it just it happens because it has to keep going. To the same to the same point of where KJ was talking about, I think there were two scenes you might have alluded to there when they take her out of the DeLorean. They just re- literally put her in garbage on the street. Like, there's like, oh, she'll be fine. She'll be fine in this garbage. And then, like, later is the scene where they uh, were in the slums of all places where they, they've told us many times that this is a dangerous neighborhood where Marty Mc- future Marty McFly lives. They don't lock the door. Like, leave her in the garbage. Don't lock the door in the slums. That's what drove the major plot line of this movie. It's the kind of elimination of reality, right? It's just, you know, reality is kind of what we can make it. You know, that there's this book uh, by this guy, Randy Laist, I think I'm L-A-I-S-T, who talks about um, Back to the Future in terms of uh, one of the question one of the question categories, uh, hyper-reality. And so there's this term hyper-reality, which means kind of in philosophy, like this idea when you can't distinguish the simulation from the real, so that there isn't, like, there isn't a reality to which things are linked, there's just simulation. Um, and that seems to be a, a big case in this movie, is that, and, and this is what he argues, is that what we see with Back to the Future, I think it's especially true in Back to the Future 2, is that there is no, the, the reality is gone. It's just whatever you can kind of hobble together or make. Um, and I still think it's just a metaphor for, you know, how we make movies and how we look at the past via movies. There isn't a past anymore. There's just the simulation of it. See, I can say from my point of view, Nick, like I have never realized that they should have just locked the DeLorean. When I watch this movie, I'm just like, oh my God, like how could this happen? But never like everything that like we shouldn't have brought Jennifer or we should have locked the doors. Um, the part that really gets me, and this is where the symbols and how they carried this all through. Why was there a fax machine in the closet for Jennifer to even get the facts about being fired? What is the point with a fax machine in a closet and in the office? You know, I'm very glad you brought up that scene because I actually wanted to make sure that I mentioned something on this podcast that I thought was a positive note on styling, but it happens within their house. And you're absolutely right. They have a million fax machines. They're, they got flying cars, but they're still sending faxes, and they shoot out of every device. And still printing with the dot printers, like it's not even a laser yes, printer. Dot matrix, <laughs> dot matrix, and and his mother gets one in the in the kitchen or whatever, or we can assume because she comes. What's this fax? Oh, it's a joke. But the reason I wanted to bring that up is I wanted to make sure I brought this up in the in the chat. I actually thought the sequence in the so-called slum where Future Marty lives. It's actually really well done in the sense of the style. We were watching, my wife and I were watching it, and we're like, that house looks really dated, but this is the future. And I said, that's the, that's the beauty of what they just did. They took a brand new development in like the not early 90s or whatever. Nothing changed except for maybe some additions of rudimentary technology. So if you look at it, the furniture, the, the kitchen has these like wood cabinets that if we looked right now, like, oh, that was like an 80s, 90s renovation. Even though it was 2015, they still had that. So I actually never really paid attention to that to great detail until I did this last rewatch. 
but I thought that was actually something they did well with the styling uh, regarding technology and the future. The future that he goes to. It's interesting, their idea of a slum too, right? Is <laughs> the slum is, uh, initially it was this nice neighborhood and now it's a, it's a really dangerous neighborhood. It doesn't seem that particularly dangerous, does it? It's just like people here can't afford home renovation and stay out of this neighborhood. Yeah, there's there's no evidence of a of a of a threat in that neighborhood at all. Yeah. Unlike um 1985C, where you have, you know, the the that area then is is actually quite dangerous. Uh Jennifer, when they dropped Jennifer, he's like, I don't remember bars on the windows when they mm-hmm. You think he would have stopped and said something like, Why are we, mm-hmm. <laughs> this isn't her house? That that is the part that bothers me because it's like you didn't you didn't think to be worried about the bars? What about all the burning cars and refuse <laughs> in the streets? It looked like a war zone. Yeah, this is just because Biff bet a lot. Or he also invests in uh power plants, is that correct? Nuclear power plants. Yeah. Why right would... next to his casino. Why would nuclear power plants lead to the end of the high school or something like that? Or... I think it's just because he had influence and paid off police, so he pretty much ran the show. Mm-hmm. So he's just, he's not a good guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's biker gangs. Yeah, I also like the, the depiction of, of bad boys in the past as biker gangs and, and these, you know, uh, uh drive-bys for no reason um did you see in that scene too there's like a sign bikers welcome <laughs> <laughs> yeah apparently he was apparently biff was based on uh, the biff and this was apparently based on trump that was what the design was going for in the uh, in the second film oh, that's funny and yeah. that is so funny you say that i have a, my manager these days is based out of singapore and she actually referenced Back to the Future 2 this week. And I didn't tell her I was doing a podcast. And she's like, oh, you know, Biff and Back to the Future 2. It's just like Trump. And I was like, wow, my worlds are literally colliding right now. Yeah, that, that was the, the physical the physical nature or the look of the character was was based on that. I could also see maybe maybe the casino because he was he was getting into casinos back then yeah. too. Yeah, yeah well, that, that was the whole thing, the kind of yeah. the, the aura. The big lifestyle, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Marginal. I I think too, like the idea of life being created by technology is a big theme in this movie. Um, I mean, not only is reality shaped by the time machine, um, you know, or rather not only do we seem like 2015 that people have these kind of embedded things and then they make them stronger. GIF, GRIF is the best example of this or the flying cars, but um, it's, it ends up being in the future that the DeLorean itself makes reality, right? It makes time how you want it. And that, that to me was kind of an interesting way of, of looking at the film as, um, as kind of technology has, has dominated even. Uh, even yeah. What do you mean by that? Tom? You mean that the, because the characters are using the DeLorean to go through time, it affects time. But I think it's also that the, the world in which we see it at 2015 is sort of in service to technology, right? Like everything is sort of, technologically more bright or better or whatnot. Um, and the car becomes kind of a metaphor for that, for, uh, you know, all of all of history even being in service of these kind of advancements. Um, so one of the things that, I, I don't know if, if this actually holds up, but I always thought the first movie was Marty's movie. And this second movie is Biff's movie. In this movie, Biff is the one who is creating the conflict of the movie, which is the almanac. 
it doesn't happen our, our main characters don't even realize what the conflict of this movie is until the third act right before they go back to 1955 um but it's kind of cool we get to see where biff grew up a little bit we get to see old biff we get to see griff so i i just always felt that this kind of was biff's movie and the first one was marty's movie I've never thought about it like that, but you're like, now that you say that, like, yeah, it definitely is a movie really more about Biff um, than like Marty and Doc. And even when we were talking about fatherhood and that question, like we didn't mention like Doc, like Doc is such a, you know, maybe the third movie is more about Doc if we, as we look at all of that, um, not to jump ahead to the next podcast, but yeah, you're right. This movie is really focused on Biff and how it's centered around Biff. I've never looked at it that way. I feel like to watch the movie again with that, in mind would be interesting. And actually, um, you're bringing up the father question again. We don't see Biff's dad, right? Griff no. is Biff's grandson. So, well, we don't see Biff's dad and we don't see Griff's Yeah, there's, dad. there's fathers are absent right. in that family line. It's a family line without fathers, <laughs> right? There's, you know, the, the parent generation is always missing. It's kind of, it's a little true with, with Marty too, right? Marty's dad is... So Marty, we meet, we meet, you know, the one Marty who's grown up with the kind of weaker version of George McFly. There's sci-fi publisher George McFly, and then there's um, kind of punching bag, punching bag George McFly. And he's not much of a father figure either. And, and Doc seems to be kind of self-generating almost. Like when we go back in time, he's still the same age. And you get the impression, no matter how far back in time you go, he's, he's still the same age. We know his family had wealth at one point that he spent down for the time machine. But there is like a distinct lack of, of fathers in this movie. There's a lack of like, there's a lack of people who generate other people. There's like, like a lack of history almost. Though you wonder, though, if Crispin Glover had decided to be or agreed to be in Back to the Future 2, would that have been a different... Because obviously they killed him in Back to the Future 2 because he didn't sign the contract to be part of Back to the Future 2. So would that storyline have been different if he had been willing to be in the movie? I mean, who knows? I mean, that's one of those things you could debate all day. But, you know, like the whole thing of him not... Because they said that like they had killed him off in the alternative 1985 because he wasn't willing to be in the movie. So you wonder like what would the plot have been if he was in the alternative 1985? Because obviously they wrote the script around that. Um, it would have been an interesting movie to see how it would have differed if he was in it in the alternative 1985. Yeah, yeah. I, he's still. I mean, he might have been a, a larger presence. He almost certainly would have been. Um, but Lorraine still would have married Biff because that's the whole premise. So yeah. yeah, you had to. That's the that's the plot. You have to get rid of him somehow. Um, but it's still the Marty we have is not the Marty who was raised by the the George McFly we admire, right? This is still a, a guy with a guy who's kind of Marty sort of invents the dad he needs, right? <laughs> in in the first Back to the Future. Um, and then he accidentally mm -hmm. uninvents him or, you know, actually, you know, in, in a quest for money sort of destroys the, the past he's invented that he likes and it's become replaced with a, a disaster. But yeah, that, that is interesting. There's just, there isn't, there isn't people who are, you know, there's, there's just these various realities. There aren't people who are creating it or we seem distant from them. So, so just bef before we go and talk about maybe what we liked or didn't like about this movie. I have to say what, what frustrated me about this film wasn't 
the, the convoluted plot, which I got the impression, KJ, that was a little irritating for you. What, what frustrated me was kind of revisiting things I liked in the first movie and just kind of sticking more information or more plot on top of it. So I, I can say that I, when I watch a movie, I don't think about a lot of these things. I sit and watch a movie and I'm like fascinated even at the corny joke. So I like it all, the way they connect. And that's like probably the, the, my favorite part. I used to love when cable TV would run one into two into three that you can seamlessly watch. And it just, it's like one continuous show. So I feel like two, I enjoy two because it's just part of the, the trilogy and it's, you need two to then tell the story of three. So I personally like it. There's a lot of holes in the plot. I mean, we've discussed a lot of things that bother us, but overall, I, I think it's a good movie. Is it the best of the three? No. I mean, I'll say there's hoverboards, which make it pretty cool. But other than that, like, it's not the best, but it's still an integral part. Going to the future is cool. They got a lot wrong. Um, I don't know. I guess when I finish watching any of these movies, like, it just reminds me that the future isn't written. And I know we so corny people always write that on facebook or you know back when we were you know younger people would put it on their a message but it's not written and every decision we make changes our future so let's make it a good one <laughs> it's so corny i know i like the corny pieces of movies um so here here's what i here's my problem with with the movie i think all right so let's let's break this movie down into three acts okay let's say the first act is the future the second act is alternative 85 and the final act is 55. So in the first act, what's the conflict? Something about Marty's kids that does not matter for the rest of the movie. The only thing that matters in that first act is the almanac was obtained. So let's actually call that a prologue because it just prompted the almanac. All right. Now let's take a look at the second act, 85. Nothing happens. Zero. Nothing happens at all. We're just getting kind of exposition. Marty's exploring this world, kind of like the beginning of a video game when you got to go around town and talk to everybody. Like that's, that's it. So let's not call that the second act. Let's call that a continuation of the prologue. And now we're, what, an hour into this movie and we're still just getting the prologue. At the end of the 80, alternate 85, um, Doc and Marty realize they have to go get the almanac. Okay, so now the movie begins in 1955. And it's quick. It's really quick. The conflict is resolved because Marty gets the almanac. There, there, there's no, there's barely any movie. That's now. a good point. Yeah. <laughs> he gets the. So that, that's my mm -hmm. problem with the. Uh... Yeah, it pushed. Yeah, that's true. It pushes the entire conflict to the last 30 minutes. Um, and everything up to that point is sort of. A fun way to look at the future, a fun way to look at a terrible 85. Yeah. But there's no movie. Mm -hmm. Don't be go wrecking one of my favorite movies here. Come on. <laughs> it's good. And, and, and that, that 85 portion was what I found yeah, so frustrating with, you know, because then you get to see the, the better movie, literally see the better movie with just our movie in front of it. <laughs> just sneak our little movie in front of this, this better yeah, movie. Exactly. Um, yeah. So yeah, that, that, that was frustrating. Um, and actually I found the last 30 minutes the hardest to get through for that reason. Yeah, I see your point. I have to say, I found Biff World kind of fun. You know, just, just, I like that actor. I like the actor who played Biff. So seeing him kind of do different things. Uh, and also old Biff kind of 
ragging on young Biff. <laughs> you know, just make like a tree and leave. You sound like an idiot when you say it wrong. <laughs> I genuinely enjoyed that. But kind of outside of that, I, I that's a really good point, KJ. That's a really good point. That's why this movie is tough to watch. What's the uh, what's the name of the actor that plays Biff? Yeah, I'm looking up his name now. He's awesome. He is incredible throughout this whole trilogy. Um, obviously, Michael J. Fox is amazing. Chris Lloyd's amazing. But I, I think he's a very important piece of why, like Kristen was saying, all these movies connect together. They, they work as a, as a trilogy, as a whole. I, I think having that consistent villain and, and the way he acts, all those different Biff's Griffs and all, all the tannins is awesome. He apparently was not originally the first Biff. Um, one of the other people was. Um, the reason why they brought him in was because they needed somebody who was significantly taller than um, Eric Stoltz, the first Marty McFly. And so he that's why they cast him. If it had been Michael Jake Fox from the beginning, it would not have been him. It would have been one of the other wow. boys, Billy Zane or one of the other ones. Yeah. So uh, that was it was kind of an accident that that he was uh, Thomas F. Wilson. There it is. So shout out to Thomas F. Wilson. There's a there's a great uh, video of him as part of his comedy routines. He sings a song about working on Back to the Future. I highly recommend doing a search for it and checking it out. He's really funny. <laughs> oh, I'll have to go check it out. <laughs> Thanks again, Kristen, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This was great. I'd also like to thank our outstanding editor, KJ, who masterfully crafts these episodes. Additionally, I'd like to acknowledge IMDb, which is a great resource for movie information. Check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Join us next time when we conclude the trilogy with KJ taking the helm for Back to the Future Part 3 from 1990. Should be a fun one. Ding, 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 ding.